I always want to communicate the message that there's never anything to be ashamed of. There's no humiliation involved in the creative life. There's only growth. There's only expression and and the desire to tell stories and connect with your readers. These are beautiful impulses. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. The Sad Stories Told for Laughs series continues with Mary Rose Wood. She's the author of one of my favorite middle grade series, The Incorrigible Children of Ashton Place. It's about a young governess who was hired to take care of three siblings who were raised by wolves, and it is hilarious. The audiobooks are also wonderful, by the way. Her most recent book, also a middle grade novel, is Alice's Farm, A Rabbit's Tale. But before Mary Rose Wood was a novelist, she was a thespian. And the story of her Broadway debut in Stephen Sondheim's Merrily We Roll Along punches all the buttons for sad stories told for laughs. There are youthful naivete, inflated expectations, public chagrin, a brutal review in the New York Times, and ultimately, perseverance and triumph. You're going to love this story. Mary Rose Wood, I'm so happy to have you on this special episode of the Habit Podcast as part of the Sad Stories Told for Laughs series. Jonathan, I am so pleased to be here. I, I feel I feel both amused and uh, heartbroken to be here in keeping with your sad stories being told for laughs theme. I'm willing to embrace all of that. Oh, good. Yes. The uh, the As we were talking about a minute, before, a minute ago before we uh, started recording, you said, um, if we don't, uh, you know, life is all comedy and we have to laugh at these things or, or we're, we're in trouble. I agree. I guess I agree because I just said it. That's right. Yes. Yeah. It's good that I agree. Well, you have some very funny stories about, I mean, when I first started thinking about this series, you're one of the first people to come to mind because of your experience on Broadway. Um, <laughs> My one experience I was going to ask you, this was your one and only experience on Broadway? Was, you see, we're, we're already on the theme. We're... <laughs> It was my greatest triumph and my most resounding defeat. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me about it. Well, I, I'm glad to. It'll be therapeutic. You know, even <laughs> after all these years, Jonathan, it's still very bittersweet <laughs> and also hilarious and wonderful. It's all of the things. Yeah. So um, anybody who knows my books uh, has probably figured out by now that I'm a big theater fan. And I actually started my career as a creative artist and as a storyteller in the theater, not in any kind of, you know, grew up in show business sort of way. I was an absolutely normal suburban kid living, you know, in the suburbs of Long Island outside of New York. Mm -hmm. And I just like, like so many high school students all over the country, I fell in love with musicals and I was in the trauma club at school and I, I, I just loved it. And I, all my friends were there. Some of my most cherished high school memories had to do with being in the high school musicals. Mm -hmm. And while I was still a high school student, I fell in love, head over heels in love with the work of Stephen Sondheim, mm -hmm. who is uh, any fan of musical theater knows uh, one of our great uh, composer lyricists, one of the great American theater artists of the 20th and 21st centuries. He's still alive and I hope still writing. And I was just the world's hugest Sondheim fan. I had all of his musicals memorized and committed to, to memory. And, and it was, he was just my idol. And honestly, you know, to pivot a little bit to writing craft, mm -hmm. uh, which is a topic that you and I both feel passionate about, the way that Sondheim writes lyrics was a huge influence on me creatively, just in terms of what you could accomplish with really good writing, storytelling and character development and voice and all those things that uh -huh. we love to talk about, right? So imagine my it, it, delight doesn't even begin to describe it. My almost hysterical excitement to, to discover after I graduated from high school and went to college, I went to NYU, I was 17 mm -hmm. years old, I was a theater major, and at the very beginning of my second year of training, uh, there was an announcement made in the theater newspaper, which was called Backstage. I believe it still exists, although mm -hmm. it's probably online now. 
<laughs> that there was going to be an audition for Stephen Sondheim's next musical. And get this, they wanted unknowns who were teenagers. Wow. So you were, what, 18 or 19 at this point? I was eight. When I saw that listing in the newspaper, I was all of 18 years old. <laughs> and with the kind of like overconfidence that only comes of complete and utter naivete, <laughs> I said, I'm going to go and get myself in that Sondheim musical. I'm going to do it. <laughs> so, yeah. so I did. So I, so they were having what is called an open call, which meant that you could just show up. If you came at the appointed time, you would be let mm -hmm. in, theoretically. As opposed they, to what, what? what's an unopened call look like? Oh, right. So in the theater, a, a real actor, a professional actor, which I certainly was not at the time. I hope I've made that clear. <laughs> <laughs> I was like in no way equipped to do this. But uh, a real professional actor would have an agent and have mm -hmm. uh, you know them submitted to, for an audition appointment. And you would go see the casting director. It would all be very scheduled and efficient. And you would know what you were doing. That wasn't me. Uh -huh. So, Did you have a headshot? Well, this is the next part of my story. Oh, I right. knew that I needed one. And for anybody out there who doesn't <clears throat> know what a headshot is, it's a picture. It's usually like eight by 10. You get them, if you're a professional, you get them professionally taken by a mm -hmm. professional photographer. And this is something that all actors have. I'm sure you've seen them. Like actors have headshots, right? They're well, you know, in Nashville, the post office and the and the barbershop and, and the hamburger place, you know, the people's the country people's country stars headshots are lined up on the on the wall. Well, there you go. Exactly like that. Yeah. You go to a restaurant, it says Dolly Parton was here, and there's a picture mm -hmm. of her, right? Eight yeah. by ten glossy. Yep. So did I have a headshot? The answer, Jonathan, is no. I did not have a headshot. Mm -hmm. I was living in a dorm room, you know, with a roommate trying to get up in time to make it to my acting class. I was, this, mm -hmm. I was in no way prepared. So I'm not going to show up without a headshot because it said in the ad, you're supposed to bring a picture, right? Yeah. So I'm living, NYU, for those of you who don't know, is downtown Manhattan. And the audition was in midtown Manhattan, home of Broadway. Mm -hmm. And so I was taking the subway uptown and in between the 14th street stop where NYU is and the, I think it was the 49th street stop where I was getting off to go to the audition is the 34th street stop, which is where you get to Penn station, which is the big train station in Manhattan. And I knew from experience that if you got off at Penn Station, there was a photo booth where you could slide a dollar in and draw the curtain and get like a little snapshot, like a Polaroid like taken of you. You've all seen these, right? When you're on a tourist someplace, yeah. there's a place where you can go in and take funny pictures with your friends. Just a little, the little uh, one by four inch strip. That would be the one. Wow. <laughs> Not an eight by 10 professionally taken headshot, but it was a photo. So I went to Penn Station I'm on my way to the audition. I'm like completely, you know, I'm like, I've got time. Oh, by the way, you'd also were supposed to bring a resume. So I typed up my resume and I wish I could do air quotes with my fingers on a podcast, but I can't, but it was my resume as I understood it right at the time yeah. I typed it up on my IBM Selectric typewriter portable. That was my college typewriter that I did all my papers on and I, so it was a one-of-a-kind document. There was not a copy. It was yep. just my original one with the, anything that needed to be X'd out or corrected. With, there was the whiteout on it. And all I had done was the high school plays. So that's mm -hmm. all that was on it. So I get off at Penn Station. I, get, I put my dollar in. I get my picture taken. I staple it to this hand-typed uh, resume, you yeah. know, like think of like a medieval monks, like illuminating <laughs> unique co copies, right? This is prior to Gutenberg. <laughs> it was just this me and this typewriter. And I, and I show up at the audition and I think it was supposed to start at, I don't know, 10 AM. And I got there like maybe just before 10 feeling so confident because I was early and I was obviously going to be one of the first people. And I was prepared, right? Because I had my bogus resume and my dollar from the photo booth picture from Penn Station. Well, Jonathan, kids had been lining up since four in the morning. 
<laughs> I think there were maybe, I don't know, 3,000. I, I, I'll have to check, you know, some, some of my friends from those days. There were literally thousands of kids waiting to be seen for this show. And I just walked kind of like wide-eyed, like, look at, look at all these people sitting in the hallways. Look at all these people standing on the stairs. In this, you know, there was just no place to put them. And I, and I just walk in and I'm thinking, well, I wonder what they're here for. You know, I'm here for the Sondheim audition, but what are they all here for? And I walk in and I, I'm quickly put straight. Like, take, go to the, the end of the line if you can find it and sit down and wait because this is going to be a long day. So I did as instructed. I still haven't, you know, collapsed my tendency to be a little overly optimistic, Mm -hmm. a little Pollyanna-ish. It's definitely my personality. Over too, uh, what's it, over too much too much? much No, (laughs) You know it. It's from the Incorrigible Children of Ashton Place books. Op too much stick. That's it. This is a concept that is drawn directly from my own personality, just in case anybody... (laughs) was wondering where I came up with it. <laughs> so um, there I am, waiting, 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 just, you know, biding my time. And eventually somebody in a position of authority comes out and says, starts making announcements, like, look, everybody, obviously we're not going to see everybody today. And um, so, but we appreciate that you came and we we are interested in knowing about you because we do want teenagers and we do want unknowns. And look at you all. Obviously, <laughs> you're unknown because you're sitting in a stairwell. So uh, they had assistance with gigantic black hefty bags, you know, like the contractor garbage bags, yeah. the big size. Yeah. And these assistants went around and everybody threw their picture and resume in the hefty bag. Like it was such a beautiful introduction to show business. Like <laughs> literally my precious car just went right into the garbage bag. Wow. So there, so that's, that was, uh, that was an initial experience, right. Of trying to pursue my dream of being in the theater, but wait, there's more. Do you want to hear the rest? <laughs> I want to make sure I'm not like abusing everybody's patience with this. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I was like humiliated, but undaunted, right? Like that's how I, that's how I'll phrase it. So I go home and, you know, at my, uh, I had a, a boyfriend in college at the time who was also an actor and he had shown up and he had gotten the same drill and uh, thrown his picture and his resume uh, into the trash bag. And so we compared notes later on and lo and behold, within a week or so, he got a, I think it was a phone call or a postcard in the mail or some kind of contact saying, we're going to see the people who came that day and here's, come at this time and we're going to try to see everybody. So he was contacted and I was like, wow, Mm. congratulations. (laughs) Because I wasn't contacted. I didn't get anything. And so I thought I consoled myself with the the certain knowledge that anybody who's ever been in a high school play knows is that they always need boys, right? There's always like more girls for all the parts and and then they always are looking for boys. So that's what I told myself. Said, fine. I wished him good luck. The day of the audition came and he went off to his audition for the new Sondheim show. And I will, I never will forget this. I went to the bane of my existence, tap dancing class. <laughs> Talk about like an exercise in humility. I, I, I was, had, you know, I was a bright kid. I got great grades. I think I graduated third in my senior class, but I wanted to be an actor. So I, I was an acting major at NYU and I was plunged into doing things that I was terrible at. And one of the things that I was bad at was dancing. And so I had to take tap dancing class. It was one of my requirements. So I'm in tap dancing class, struggling, not being good at it, you know, sweaty and just a mess, right? Like, like you'd be after an hour of failed tap dancing. (laughs) And I walked out of the studio to go to the bathroom or something. And the person at the reception desk said, Hey, Mary Rose, there's a phone message for you. Now, I just want to remind anyone who is a little bit younger than mm-hmm. me that there was a time that you didn't have a phone on your person. And that if somebody yeah. wanted to give you a message, they had to call and speak to somebody who was at the place where you were and leave a message and hope that it got to you. So that's what had happened. My boyfriend had been at the, or this is what I later found out, he'd been at the audition 
And he had a reason. He knew where I was. And he was the one who had called. And the, and the message, I'll never forget it. It was like a little paper slip from, you know, the old phone message mm-hmm. books. And it said, they want you at the Sondheim audition. Come, you know, before five o'clock. And I was, I, th- I thought I was being pranked. Yeah. You know, I, it just seemed like, how could that possibly be the case? But up to much dick as ever, <laughs> I, I race outside. I get to the subway. I go home. I quickly wash up because I'm a sweaty mess. Get out of my tap dancing clothes. Put on some other clothes. Grab the one piece of sheet music that I had just in case this was for real. And they wanted mm. me to sing. And, and got back on the train, went back uptown. I, I made it just in the nick of time. And I run in breathless and still thinking that maybe it's a joke yeah. uh, uh, at my own expense mm-hmm. and saw the first person who seemed to be in a position of authority. And I said, um, hi, I'm, I'm Mary Rose Wood. I, I, I got a message that I was supposed to come audition. And <laughs> I later found out that this was the marvelous Beverly Randolph, who was the stage manager of the show. And she had a very big personality. And she said, you're Mary Rosewood. Finally, we've been calling your name all day. Get over here. And she sort of grabbed me, you know, and dragged me into the room. And I walk in and there's, you know, famous musical director, Paul Gimignani, who I knew well by sight. He was such a well-known Broadway figure. And they were all laughing because they had in fact been calling me all day. And I think I had become kind of a running gag, you know, like, well, who's, you know, the invisible, when is she going to show up? When is she going to grace us with her presence? And, and I, I went in and uh, they said, did you bring anything to sing? And I threw my song on the, in front of the piano player. And I'll never forget. It was a Rogers and Hart tune called, I wish I were in love again. And I sang it as best I could. I probably only got through half of it. And they nodded and said, you know, great. Thanks very much. Off you go. Now, it turned out they had been calling me all day. They had sent me a postcard and they had left a voice message. But here were my circumstances at the time, Jonathan. (laughs) I was living in like a one and a half room apartment in the East Village. This was 1980, by the way. So anybody who knows their New York history knows that this was the worst neighborhood in the world, right? It was just, it was a very low rent place to live, but I was a student and that's what I could afford. And so my mailbox was perpetually broken it was always being broken into. Wow. And so they had not been able to deliver the postcard. And I had, like we did in those days, let me know if you've ever had this. I had an answering service because it was the only way anybody could leave you a phone message. Oh. But I didn't have any money. And so I hadn't paid the bill in months. And so they were holding my messages. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So it was a pure act of providence that, my college boyfriend happened to be there the day that they were calling my name. Now, I'm going to no. fast forward a lot because the odds against me getting in the show are so overwhelming, right? And yet, several months later, after I think eight or 10 callbacks, I was one of the 20-something kids that they cast. And I made my Broadway debut. Ta-da! <laughs> Your boyfriend make the cast? He did not. Yeah. He did not make the cast. He, he, he has a much more supporting role in this story. He ha, he played his part and he played it beautifully. Yeah. And I'll I'll be forever grateful because if he if he hadn't been there that day, none of this would have happened. Yeah. So you would think after that incredible buildup that this would be the greatest, like most triumphant, happy ending. Yeah, this ever. isn't a sad story so far. This is a very happy story. It, well, it has its it had its twists and turns, didn't it? But so it far, we're at a happy ending. This is what we call the midpoint turn, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> this is the point in the story where everything's going really well for our hero, but it's not over yet. Um, there's a lot that's been, you know, actually in the years since, a lot said and written about Merrily. So I won't belabor all of the details of what happened. Yeah, but, but the show is Merrily We Roll Along. Merrily We Roll Along is the name of the actual show. And I'll tell you more about it in a second. But, okay. but what happened next was they cast the whole company and they did it almost in, in this incredible way that they had all of the finalists, if you will. It was kind of like a game show, you know. Mm-hmm. They had all the finalists on the last day and we 
we got cut, you know, it was like, it was one of those scenarios where we kept having to sing and dance and read and sing and dance and read. And, and people kept being asked to go home. And those of us that were left was like, okay, I'm still, I'm still here. I made the cut, you know, yeah. and they got to the end of the day and, and they divided the room in two. And we did not know if we were the ones who had been picked or we were the ones who were about to be cut. And my group stood there, you know, with bated breath. And it turned out that they turned to the other group and said, thank you very much. You can go. And then they turned to us and said, congratulations, you're, you're about to be in a Broadway show by Stephen Sondheim. And so there was much screaming and rejoicing, and it was this triumphant moment. But then we learned that the show had not been finished yet. It wasn't finished being written. And really? so the original production uh, was being, uh, the, the schedule was being changed, and it wasn't going to go into rehearsal until 1981. And we were told, now imagine saying this to a bunch of 18, 19, 20-year-olds. Some were 16, actually. The two youngest members of the cast were 16. All right, you guys are it. You've got the jobs. But you ha we have to wait a year. Don't change. Don't grow. Don't, don't gain weight. Don't lose weight. Don't get taller. Don't get smaller. Don't change your hair. Like, yeah. this is it. Like, that's it now. <laughs> wow. This was... It was a full year from the, and, from the time and, you're... And we waited, uh, we waited a full year to go into rehearsal, almost a full year to go in rehearsal. Wow. Then we, so let's fast forward that year. It was an amazing year, also incredibly strange, because I had nothing else to do but finish my second year of college, but I knew that I was going to be in a Broadway show the following fall, so I was probably not the most likable acting student. <laughs> <laughs> Even my teachers were a little bit like, ah. Uh, she's the one who's going to be on Broadway. Well, I guess we can't say anything to her. It was, the whole thing was very awkward and strange. I finished the year. We went, the next fall came and with hearts full of optimism, we went into this, what felt like it was going to be this dream experience. And all through rehearsals, we worked as hard as I've ever worked in my life on anything because the show was still being finished. And you know, later on, I became a writer, obviously. So I understand how tricky deadlines can be. Mm -hmm. And they also seem to be, they had that effect on Steve Sondheim. He did his best work under deadline. Mm -hmm. So it was only when we were finally really in rehearsal that he wrote some of the most difficult and ultimately most wonderful songs in the score. So we weren't just rehearsing the show. We were rehearsing version A and then version B and then version C. Like the show kept changing as we were rehearsing it. And because we were all so young, a decision was made that we did not do what a Broadway musical typically does, which is it does an out-of-town tryout. We were just going to open this brand new show that was being written kind of as we watched on Broadway in full view of the New York City theater-going community and the critics. Yeah. Do you think this was a good idea, Jonathan? Let me just see if you're following the logic. Well, Do you see what I'm driving yeah, at here? I, I feel like you're, you're setting some things up here. Um, making excuses would be another, another way to say it. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um, Let's see. I, I, you, one thing you said I didn't understand. You said because y'all were so young, they didn't do the, the out-of-town opening. Yeah, well, like the, as I said, the two youngest members of the cast were 16. And yeah. so, uh, you know, to it's one thing to take a bunch of seasoned Broadway actors and say, we're all going to go live in hotel rooms in New Haven for a few mm -hmm. months, but you can't bring a bunch of teenagers easily right. yeah, <laughs> to sure. do that. And so it was, it was probably a wise decision, but it turned out to be, uh, well, what did it turn out to be? Well, why don't you tell uh, 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 why don't I tell you? So we opened the show. We, we did what is called previews. So we didn't just have opening night. We, we started to sell tickets and open the show, but we're in our Broadway theater. We're on Broadway and we're selling tickets and people are, begin to come see the show. And from the first preview, we know we're in trouble. People cannot make heads or tails of the show. They can't figure out the plot. They can't follow the characters. It, it's a mess. And I should say, for anybody who doesn't know the show, it's based on source material. It's actually based on an old Kaufman and Hart play. Uh, I don't remember the year of it, but uh, I guess the 1930s is a safe bet. And the structure of that play is that it goes backwards in time so that the first scene takes place at a certain point in time, but then the next scene takes place a couple of years before. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. And then before and before. So by the time you get to the end of the piece, the um, the the I think it's about 20, 25 years have passed. And so mm-hmm. the characters that you met at the beginning are now much younger yeah. than they were when you first met them. So, so you, this you're was, made up as old people. And then as, as the play goes on, you go backstage and get some of the makeup wiped off? Well, no. And this maybe was part of what was so confusing. So the the concept was to cast the show with actors who were the age that the characters would be in the last scene. Uh-huh. And then just to have us act as if we were old people and try to delineate the passage of time through our amazing performances. <laughs> Most of us did not have any professional experience. Some of us did. Some were incredibly gifted pros, but some of us, like, uh, I guess I'll speak for myself, straight from the high school play, direct to Broadway. And it was asking a great deal. It was asking a great deal of us to pull this off. And so, no, there was no age makeup. Like, that okay. didn't happen. Uh-huh. We were just, and, and it wouldn't have been possible because it was a musical that goes from scene to scene to scene mm-hmm. to scene. We were always on stage. So, uh, so no wonder the audience was confused. <laughs> uh, emergency measures. Costumes? Uh, the costumes were supposed to help. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the costumes were, the original set of costumes were supposed to really help delineate what year we were in. So this uh-huh. particular uh, this particular adaptation of the Kaufman and Hart play, it didn't use the same time frame. It actually began, um, I guess, in the right around the time the show was done, like I would mm-hmm. say 1980. And then you went back in time and then the the final scene of the play took place. Uh, the kids, the, the leads who are now sort of young adults, fresh out of college. I think one of them's fresh out of the army um, are on a rooftop of a tenement building watching Sputnik. Oh. So that's where we end up in time at the end of the show. Uh-huh. So there's a lot of fashion changes, right? There's the sixties, there's the seventies, there's the eighties. There's all of these things. The costumes were supposed to do a lot of the work, but they were so, the audience was so confused. And in fact, the audience got so confused, even by the costumes that they, as each preview, de- as I say, desperate measures were sort of put into place to try to make it clearer. So they cut the costumes and one of the wardrobe people went out to the gap and got just sweatshirts for everybody. And on the sweatshirts, they put letters that said what are the character's name was because they could, the audience literally could not follow from scene to scene who was who they added projections so that on the side walls of the theater, there was a, there was a projection that told you what year it was. Like it was desperate. It was desperate, Jonathan. They tried everything. Oh my gosh. Things got worse and worse. And finally, we got to opening night, which happened to be Thanksgiving weekend of 1981. And we really thought we'd fixed it. You know, we'd, we'd worked mm-hmm. so hard. Imagine also all these fixes going in while we were performing eight shows a week on Broadway. We were rehearsing all day and then doing the show. And sometimes we were rehearsing a different version of the show during the day than we were doing that night. Oh. Because, because it was changing so fast. Yeah. So, uh, and all of this is happening just to, I just want to tie this back to this, like, you know, like humiliations play for laughs theme of yours, which is so great. All of this is happening in the context of, of like my most precious dream, like coming true. Yeah. <laughs> this, yeah. is, this is what I thought my life's purpose was, you know, <laughs> I mean, granted, I'm still pretty young, but you can be yeah. really obsessed with a dream, even at that age. Sure. We did the final performance of the show and, you know, the final audience was very supportive, as I recall, because it was the last show and they had uh, put up the closing notice. So everybody knew we were going to, we were, uh, is that so? Yeah, I think the closing notice was already up. Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. no, no, no. I skipped something. You're saying the final audience. You're talking about opening night. I'm. I skipped ahead, Jonathan. Let's go back because I don't want to miss the part where I get to actually read the one of the most hilariously bad reviews I know that any I've ever gotten and that anyone has ever gotten. Um, I'm going to get it up. I have my iPad in front of me so that I have it at the ready. <laughs> so, all right. So we finally got to opening night. So skip what I just said about the final okay. audience. We finally get to opening night 
and the the critics are going to be there. And it's the opening night audience. And this is the make or break night. We mm-hmm. do the show. We sing our hearts out. We dance our hearts out. We do the very, very best we can. You wear and your sweatshirts, your hearts out. We, 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 exactly. You know, we wore our hearts on our sweatshirt sleeves. <laughs> <laughs> and then we went back to the dressing rooms and we put on our, you know, granted inexpensive opening night gear because we were mostly a bunch of kids. And, uh, you know, that <laughs> And we went to the opening night party at the Plaza Hotel. I mean, Jonathan, this was, it was such an over-the-top dream come true. My Broadway debut, opening night, Stephen Sondheim, Hal Prince, my, one of my other idols, one of the great Broadway directors. And, and we're at the Plaza Hotel, and the party's going great. And at a certain point, the party, a certain chill came over the <laughs> And anybody who's ever been at a Broadway opening night knows that there is a moment when some assistant runs out to the newsstands and gets the newspaper to read the reviews. Oh, Mary Rose, I know how this ends, but I'm still filled with dread. uh, Well, you should be filled with dread because it only gets worse. I mean, it does eventually get better, but this is the part. So somehow the reviews get leaked into the party and all of a sudden little huddles start to form and the laughter subsides and, you know, things start to get a little dour and everybody goes home and, and there's, you know, there's wailing and rending of garments. And the next morning, the New York Times, then as now the paper of record for Broadway theater, prints a review that I, I can't possibly read the whole thing, but I'm going to try and give you the, some of the high points. Okay. Let's see. I'll just read the opening first and then one of my favorite paragraphs. As we all should probably have learned by now, this is Frank Rich, by the way, the, mm-hmm. the most influential theater critic in New York at that time. He's no longer a theater cr- critic, but, but this, he was at the time. Mm-hmm. As we all should probably have learned by now, to be a Stephen Sondheim fan is to have one's heart broken at regular intervals. Usually the heartbreak comes from Mr. Sondheim's songs, from his music, uh, for his music can tear through us with an emotional force as moving as Gershwin's. Sometimes the pain is compounded by another factor. I'll skip ahead. Suffice it to say, uh, oh, uh, let me read it properly. Sometimes the pain is compounded by another factor. For some of Mr. Sondheim's most powerful work turns up in shows, Anyone Can Whistle, Pacific Overtures, for example, that fail. Suffice it to say that both kinds of pain are abundant. In Merrily We Roll Along, the new Sondheim Harold Prince George Firth musical that opened at the Alvin last night. Mr. Sondheim has given this evening a half dozen songs that are crushing and beautiful, that soar and linger and hurt, but the show that contains them is a shambles. (laughs) Shambles, Jonathan. This was my first professional review. Shambles. Now, let's see. Uh, Merrily We Rolled Along has been adapted from the Kaufman and Hart collaboration, a Broadway curiosity of 1934. While the new version is rewritten and updated, it repeats the defects of the original text, even as it adds more of its own. It goes on and it gets worse. There's, let me just have a paragraph, let's see. One of the running gags uh, since, in the years since, was that uh, the treatment of the cast, you would think that it would be kind of mean-spirited to say bad things about a bunch of kids who are doing their best, but I yes. guess Frank Rich didn't think so. Um, he, he, oh my gosh, it's so bad. I'm just skimming through. With the exception of Sally Klein as the Jettison first wife, the rest of the cast is dead wood. And so we always thought that it was sort of funny that I was one of the few cast members that got called out by name for, <laughs> for being in the show. Uh, there was just, uh, there's a one phrase, it's so good. Here we go. Uh, it talks, Rich talks a little bit about how unlikable all the characters are and then says, we keep waiting for some insight into these people that might make us understand, if not care about them, but all we get is fatuous attitudinizing. 
Oh goodness! Oh my god! I, it's so there's another difference. The, it's uh, the zinger. Oh my gosh! The book's tone seems as empty as its characters. It just goes on and on. Do you know how we writers, when we get decent reviews for our books, you know, our publicists say, "Oh, pull out the good quotes." You know, we're going to use them mm. as blurbs. This one review, you could pull out like twenty nasty blurbs if you wanted to really just do a page of <laughs> mean things that could be said about one work of art and everyone associated with it this this review is a thing of legend mm. in theater history and and merrily became so now i get to skip back ahead after that review it was very clear that we had no future and so merrily became um you know it closed early uh it the closing notice went up and the curtain came down, as they say, <laughs> and it became known as one of Sondheim's uh, most notorious flops. How many, uh, how many nights did it play after opening night? You know, I should have looked this up. I can never remember. It was like three and a half weeks total. Oh, okay. It was like, it was like two weeks of previews and a week and a half run, of running. It was very uh-huh. quick. It was, uh-huh. it, it was... You know, we were all planning to retire off of our merrily <laughs> careers. You know, we were all being launched into the firmament of show business. And, and we just came crashing down in flames. But there's one more plot twist to go before I wrap up this, this tragic comic tale, which is that we closed on Saturday night of Thanksgiving weekend in 1981. And we sobbed our way through that final performance and we were heartbroken. And all, all of our, like the, from the highest high to the lowest low, if you can imagine, a bunch of young people going through this together. Yeah. The good news is that we were incredibly bonded over mm-hmm. it. It was really, uh, it was one of those life formation experiences. And to this day, I'm very uh, close friends with, with, the, with the Merrily kids, as we call mm-hmm. ourselves. Mm-hmm. But we had a deal as most big Broadway shows do, to record a cast album. And this deal, uh, the schedule was that we were supposed to go into RCA Studios uh, the very next day, that Sunday, and record the album. And the way the story was told to me, RCA said, oh, well, forget it. This show's a flop. We don't want to record the album. And our hero, Hal Prince, the director of the show, said to RCA, oh, you're going to record this album. Because if you back out of this deal, uh, you'll never record another Sondheim show again. So Mm -hmm. there was a little bit of show business, uh, you know, uh, negotiation to have happen. But the bottom line was we did record the album and I, they, they gave us one day to do it. So the show is closed. We're all hoarse from weeping (laughs) and we are never going to do the show again. And we all show up early the next morning, uh, heartbroken and furious and uh, you know just kind of out of our minds and and spent one crazy day crazy day recording the entire cast album of merrily we roll along the the people who had the smaller parts are in the chorus like i was went home at some point that night but some of the leads stayed way late like they stayed till early in the morning because once they left, that was it. There'd be no other chance. Mm -hmm. And that was, it was not enough time to record a whole cast album Mm -hmm. and the orchestra is there. I mean, just, it was a whole scene and we did it. And, and when that album came out, like some months later, everybody listened to it. And obviously all of the Sondheim super fans of which there are many, um, few of them had gotten to see the show because it uh-huh. closed so quickly. Yeah. And they listened to the album and they said, wait a minute, this is fantastic. How could this show be a flop? So almost immediately, it became kind of like this cult obsession. Uh-huh. You know, the show that people were like, wait a minute, I, uh-huh. h- how could this be? You know, and then all of a sudden, all kinds of people started claiming they'd seen it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was there. Oh, I was there at the fourth preview. And oh, it, it became evident at some point soon after that if everyone who claimed they had seen the show had seen it, we would still be running because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there were so many people who said they were there. This oh, was man. 1981. So obviously many years have passed since then. But over the years, this show has had a complete turnaround in terms of its reputation. Yeah. And it is um, now a, kind of a beloved part of the Sondheim canon and still gets done all the time. Does it, it, it gets done on Broadway? I mean, has, has it been performed? It has, 
it has been revived in New York uh, mm-hmm. a couple of times it, uh, on and off Broadway. It's been done in the West End. It gets done in mm-hmm. regional theater. It gets done in high schools all the time because it's uh-huh. actually, it turns out, is a great show for high school uh, <laughs> kids to do. And uh, it's it even became uh, the subject of a documentary film that came out a couple of years ago mm-hmm. when, ironically, those of us from the original Broadway cast had now aged into the correct ages for the roles that we were originally playing. And it's an absolutely wonderful film and I highly recommend it. It's called the best worst thing that ever could have happened. It's uh, streaming on Netflix. Last time I checked. I I have seen it. I saw it on Netflix. I guess last time you and I talked. Oh my gosh. Well, so then, you know, I mean, it says something about uh, the humiliations and triumphs and the endless cycle of fortune that uh, strikes us, afflicts us in in life, particularly as artists, but I think everyone found something to relate to yeah, it, about the story. Movie. You know, it was just like you you can you can go through all kinds of things, and you just it ain't over till it's over. Yeah. You, know, you just don't know how things are going to end. Yeah. So, Jonathan, um, that is my tale. That's my merrily tale. Well, that's yeah. a that's a great one. By the way, I felt like you were very much underutilized in that movie. Oh, I ha- I had a brief appearance. Yeah. Um, but I was not one of the leads, you know? Yeah. So well, I think that they rightly focused on the experiences of the principal actors who far more so than someone like me who had, was not even a professional actor yet. Yeah. Some of the, the leads were people who um, rightly thought that their careers were going to be launched mm-hmm. into the stratosphere. Yeah. by Like Sputnik. It like Sputnik, exactly. Call back to Sputnik. <laughs> and for that not to have happened and for life to have taken so many unexpected twists and turns, although many of them have had great careers since then. Jason Alexander was in that show, wasn't he? Jason Alexander was in that show. He yeah. was. It was. Uh, he was already a professional actor, but he was quite young. He was, I think, in his very early 20s uh-huh. and uh, was absolutely wonderful in the show. And Was he, I, he was one of the leads? He was. He was one mm-hmm. of the leads. He played the role of, of uh, Joe Josephson, who was a, uh, a Broadway producer. So the, the plot of Merrily, as adapted by uh, Sondheim and George Firth, the book writer, uh, they threw a little autobiography in it into it so that it was actually about a songwriting team. It was about peop, uh, a young team of, of artists who wanted to write Broadway musicals. Mm-hmm. And the producer who gives them their first big break is this guy, Joe Josephson. And that's who Jason played. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, he was, he was wonderful. And, you know, Jason, people know him. If you don't know who we're talking about, Jason Alexander became a global, uh, you know, figure of fame and admiration by his hilarious performance of the character of George Costanza in Seinfeld. This is comedy classic. This is, this is comedy that will last forever. Right. Um, But at the time he was a young, uh, Broadway actor, he could sing great. He was a fantastic dancer, you know, and uh, it was just a pleasure to work with him at that age. Well, that's such a great story. And I love that it, that like so many of the stories that, that I collect in this sad stories told for laughs, uh, it actually ends up, um, you know, pushing through as, as people push through, the ending becomes not so it's not actually a humiliation. Right. And, and you and I were, were talking earlier. Yeah. You, you have some questions about my terminology in the first place to call these humiliations. Well, not so much questions about your terminology, but I, it's something that I feel that many writers struggle with. And mm-hmm. I often speak to my own writing students uh, the writers whom I mentor about this idea of shame and how we can't let a kind of a false idea 
about what it means to be a writer or about what the writing process is like or about what our relationship to our work should be like to get us so tangled up in shame and worrying about what other people are going to think of our work or what other people are going to say about our work that we don't fully commit to our work. Mm -hmm. It's a tremendous obstacle. And it's one of the reasons, uh, you know, I'm not just being really persnickety, about wanting to interrogate this idea of humiliation. Um, it's something I think about a lot because I never want the fear of uh, exposure or humiliation or shame to get in the way of artists developing and of mm -hmm. doing their work. And one of the places that I see that it can activate is when writers who are at maybe a fairly early stage of their development, that doesn't necessarily mean they're young, right? Because as you know, Jonathan, you mentor writers as well. Like people, people can start to act on their desire to write at any age. It's the door, that door is always open to us. It's not like being a figure skater. You know, you can't be, you know, my age and say, Oh, I decided I want to be an Olympic figure skater. That ship has sailed, but you can always start to write. Um, it, if they, uh, if they, if they feel at a certain point that they want to get serious about their work and they wonder if, oh, should I study? You know, should I learn? Should I get involved in a, in a course or a program or join a membership or, you know, do something where I can learn how to do better? One of the first things that happens when any of us undertake to improve our craft is that we, our taste improves. Yeah. As soon as we know better, we look at what we did last week and we go, oh no. Yeah. Right? You you can, yeah. you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. So the experience of learning has a, a kind of an inextricable connection with being brave enough to forgive yourself uh mm -hmm. if necessary. And I don't even think it's necessary. It, to accept that Every time you look at work you did before and you say, oh my gosh, I can't believe I was so naive. I can't believe I was so dumb. I showed that to people. I queried that book. I had no idea what baby pictures it really was, right? I, I didn't know how naive that work really was. It was the best I could do at the time, but I showed it to people thinking it was all that. You know, like me going with my Polaroid to the audition, exactly the same. Yeah. It, yeah. it can get in the way of us being open to learning is my point. Mm -hmm. Because every time we learn something new, we have to go through that little grieving process of like, oh, I, I didn't know any better. Now yeah. I know better. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so I, I always want to communicate the message that there's never anything to be ashamed of. There's no humiliation involved in the creative life. Mm -hmm. There's only growth. There's only expression and, and the desire to tell stories and connect with your readers, these are beautiful impulses and it's a great path. And I don't, I don't want anyone to, to feel like, uh, I, and I hear this all the time and I bet you do too. I wrote something that I'm afraid to show it to anybody, mm -hmm. you know, and, and how do we get through, how do, why is that? Why are we afraid to show our work to people? We're afraid they're going to criticize it. They're going to, you know, sometimes we need feedback in order to be better. But if we're afraid to get feedback because we don't want to be humiliated or feel ashamed, like we don't get the feedback we need. So I always want to interrogate those words and ask, well, what is it? What is it that we're ashamed of? What did we do? Did we do anything bad? No. Is yeah. it shame that we know better now than we did before? No, that's not shame. It's evidence of growth. Yeah. My friend Helena Sorensen, quoting T.S. Eliot, um, says, last year's words belong to last year's language. And next mm. year's words await another voice. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, we can be kind to ourselves for these things. You look back and they go, what was I thinking? Or, or you know, I was up too much stick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, the, 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 I love the way you've, you've been framing this, Mary Rose, that, that the, there's no shame in, in learning learning better, you know, and, and exactly um, our, our need to, our need to have it right. Um, if our need to have it right keeps us from getting it right. Well, that's, that's a, that's a big problem. It's a pity. It's a form of self-sabotage and mm -hmm. it, it sometimes can look from the outside, like someone is 
rigid or not open to instruction, but underneath that is a little bit of fear and vulnerability because they're just afraid of of having to go through what they fear will be the unendurable shame mm-hmm. of it being pointed out that their work isn't perfect. You know, mm-hmm. who told you your work was supposed to be perfect? Here's another way that this can get in the way of a writer. The difference between your first draft and your revised finished version is vast and it's yeah. supposed to be. It better be, yeah. It better be. Otherwise, you're not really doing the job, right? But yeah. so many writers, you know, they don't fully know this. They don't fully understand it. They don't get to see the first drafts of the books that they admire most. They just get to see that finished copy mm-hmm. bound in hardcover sitting on the library shelf, right? Mm-hmm. So they don't see the long, messy journey that got that writer to this finished book. Yeah. And so they assume that their first drafts are supposed to resemble something like a finished work. And mm-hmm. that is never the case. And yes. so what happens? You put that first draft down and you look at it and you say, Blech, this isn't good. Mm-hmm. I must have no talent. Yeah. I must not be any good at this. And then that's, you know, that's a terrible uh, death of a dream for someone who really wanted to learn to write well, but got in their own way just at the starting gate. Yeah. So. Well, Mary Rose, I'm collecting these stories, you know, I say for the edification and entertainment of my listeners, but but you have, have kind of hit on a, a deeper reason that I like to collect these stories and share them. And that is, to, to see that you, you know, and everybody else in this series of, of conversations have experienced things that, that could, you know, break a person's spirit or cause yeah. them to, to not want to continue. And yet, you know, as you said, we see, we see the finished product and we think, boy, these people are, are really, you know, I mean, I, I love your book so much and I, and it's, it's, um, and I think of you as a as a wildly successful writer and artist. That's, that's very sweet, Jonathan. Thank you. I would well, say that quite sincerely. Thank you very much. It's yeah. a, that's lovely to hear. So it's so I, I love hearing that there. This was not the story of your whole life. <laughs> you know. Oh heavens no! Yeah. I mean heavens no! And and once again, you know, I didn't start writing fiction till I was in my forties, mm-hmm. and I like to I like to remind people of that. Yeah, and it's not that I wasn't doing other things in my twenties and thirties. I was an actor. I did improv. I wrote plays. I wrote screenplays. I, I wrote mm-hmm. musicals. Like I evolved. At, you know, my storytelling, my desire to connect with audiences through storytelling took many forms. Mm-hmm. So I didn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't show up in my early forties saying oh, I'm a rank beginner. I have no idea, but I'm going to try it. I had some background. But I didn't actually start writing fiction and didn't get my first books published until I was in my 40s. So there are many, many twists and turns along the way for all of us. You can't yeah. actually know anything about the journey that it took to get someone where they are just by outward appearances. That's right. Yeah. Well, Mary Rose, thank you so much for sharing this story. I thought it was so much fun. And um, I think it's going to do some people some good. Oh, well, I appreciate so much having the opportunity to share it with you and with your listeners. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, Jonathan. Yes. All right. Thanks, Mary Rose. Bye. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com.